podcast. Thank you so much for joining us for our first episode of our new series that we are running this year in 2023. I am very excited about it. But I have two amazing people that are joining our podcast today, and I want to give them a warm welcome and introduction before we launch into our, our series discussion. So first off, we have Megan. Megan graduated from Utah State University with a degree in exercise science. She's been an Orion health coach for nine years and has been a certified personal trainer through NASM for 11 years. Megan believes that health and wellness is not a one-size-fits-all journey and enjoys working with her clients to uncover best practices for the individual. Megan, thank you so much for joining us again. Oh, so happy to be here. <laughs> and Jenny is the clinical training manager for Orion responsible for continuous quality improvement, performance management, and behavioral skills training within the Orion coaching department. Jenny has her bachelor's of science degree from Brigham Young University, specializing in exercise physiology and wellness. These two ladies were invited to our podcast today because both of them are CDC certified diabetes prevention coaches, which launches us in to our first episode for diabetes prevention. So Jenny, thank you so much for joining us as well. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. So this new series is going to be a couple different episodes throughout the year um, discussing diabetes prevention in various categories. Um, so today we're going to be talking specifically about nutrition, which we'll launch into in just a few minutes. But Jenny, do you want to start out and just let let us know um, kind of what insulin resistance is and how diabetes is related to that before we kind of dive into the nitty gritty. Yes, absolutely. And and before we talk about what insulin resistance is, I feel like it's probably important that we talk about what is insulin, first of all, <laughs> um, just really quick. Up. So insulin, if you don't know, is a hormone that we produce naturally in our bodies, unless you're a type one diabetic because um, insulin is produced in your pancreas. And if you're a type one diabetic, your pancreas doesn't work. So if you haven't figured out already, we are specifically talking about preventing type two diabetes. Um, and what insulin does, it does a lot of different things. Its most famous role is regulating our blood glucose levels. Um, the, the specific effect of insulin depends on the cell, like the brain, for instance, uses glucose for energy and neuron growth. The heart uses uh, glucose for like the heart size, blood pressure, muscles use it for protein production, things like that. Basically insulin is very important. Um, if we don't have it, our body is going to shut down. Um, so that takes us into what insulin resistance is. And what that means is that your blood levels of insulin are higher than they used to be. And that insulin doesn't work as well. Um, and insulin resistance can be present way before someone develops type two diabetes, we often associate the two together, but they are not identical. So you can be insulin resistant without being a type two diabetic. Um, and the reason for that is because your body will produce more and more insulin. Your, your cells are resistant to taking the insulin in. So your body compensates by just producing more and more insulin. So while you have high levels of insulin, you might have normal levels of glucose and you might be functioning perfectly fine. You're just kind of unaware that that's what's going on inside. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Um, and Megan, what makes glucose go up and what makes our body start secreting insulin? Uh, the food that we eat. So anytime that we eat, uh, our, our body will respond 
by that food gets digested and the glucose is released into the bloodstream, which triggers the pancreas to release the insulin. Uh, so that insulin can essentially accompany the glucose molecules to all those parts of your body. Um, and so uh, something I maybe just wanted to, uh, to highlight that Jenny said is that it's possible for your glucose levels in your blood to be normal, even though the insulin levels in your blood are not. Um, if your body is becoming insulin resistant, it's putting more and more of that into your bloodstream. So the levels of your insulin can be a lot higher that your a glucose test wouldn't necessarily detect at least right earlier on um, because enough is is flooded into your bloodstream to bring that glucose down and get it into those different cells of your body. Um, anyway, I, I'm so sorry. I went on a little bit of a tangent there. Uh, to answer your question directly, the food that we eat as it's broken down releases a glucose into your bloodstream and the types of food that you eat will affect the levels of glucose differently. Exactly. And that's why we're talking about what we're talking about today, which again is an amazing, you know, segue into, you know, a little bit of our nutrition focus today. Um, so Megan, do you have any stats um, in terms of Megan or Jenny, any stats that kind of will dive into, you know, you know insulin resistance or the number of type two diabetics are out there or even the pre-diabetic levels, which is really what we're talking about today. Right. Yeah, we are talking about uh, prediabetes specifically. Um, and if you hear Jenny or I refer to it more as insulin resistant, I think uh, that's because that may be the more accurate term. And I think that that is a conversation that you'll see start turning in the medical community um, in a health and wellness arena um, as it's being learned about more and able to test for better. So if you hear insulin resistance, it is very closely associated with prediabetes, but maybe even more, more accurate. Um, so like we said, one can be insulin resistant without being diagnosed prediabetic. Um, and because it's it's historically a little bit harder to um, well, less observable uh, mm -hmm. in symptoms of people and a more expensive test to test for insulin than it is for glucose. Many, many people could be insulin resistant without having any no, idea about it. Yeah. So um, some recent studies hint that up to 85% of all U.S. adults may have insulin resistance uh, along with more developed countries. Uh, tend to be more insulin resistant, like China, India, mm, places yeah. like that. Sure. Oh my gosh. That statistic is mind boggling. And, Jenny, and did you want to pop in? I do because something that I think is really interesting of in the same study that, that Megan referenced, um, results showed that less than uh, a third of what the BMI would classify as normal weight adults were metabolic, metabolically healthy or did not have insulin or did resistance. Um, and, and that prevalence decreased to, to 8% and 0.5% overweight and obese individuals respectively. But I feel like a lot of times people think that, oh, if I'm in a healthy quote unquote, healthy weight, then this does not apply to me when that couldn't be further mm -hmm. from the truth. When it's, mm -hmm. when it's 33% of that BMI classified normal weight adults 
are still experiencing some level of insulin resistance. Wow. Unbelievable. So again, you know, this topic is, is relevant to all, and there's probably so many of us that we silently don't even know it because we haven't had our insulin tested. So I think, you know, this topic is completely applicable to probably every single person within our community based on that statistic that Megan just threw out at us. So I think, you know, welcome everybody who's joined us. Um, You're going to get something out of this for sure. And can I, can I repeat just for those in the back, what Jenny said (laughs) as to hide, I'd want to highlight up to a third of people who are classified as normal weight on a BMI scale, it's estimated up to a third of people are insulin resistant. Amazing. Yep. So cool. So let's dive into the nutrition of it. Um, You know, there's so many different places that we could start with that, but let's talk about these pesky carbs. Um, carbohydrates that are out there that I know so many people think that they are just the devil, but we need them. Um, so who would like to start talking about, you know, the pastas and the breads and the carbs and all of the things that I love so very much. Jenny, I'll let you I, I, I can do that because, yeah. because Megan is smiling because I, it infuriates me when people are like cards for the devil. Um, I need to eliminate carbs. Carbs are wonderful. (laughs) Carbs are wonderful. We need carbs. Carbs are an essential macronutrient. When I say macronutrient, I'm talking about carbs, protein, and fats are three macronutrients. Um, So carbs are one of those. They can be broken down into subgroups of fiber, starches, and sugar. What carbs are is essentially is anything that your body is going to convert into glucose to give you the energy to function. Um, And we need energy to function. Every part of our body does, our brain, our heart, our muscles, every single part of us. Um, And there's different parts of a carbohydrate. You've probably heard of refined carbohydrates and whole grains. Um, What that is, because a lot of people don't know the difference, except one tastes better than the other, (laughs) um, is that there's three parts to to a grain. There's a bran, a starch, and a germ. The bran and the germ contain the fiber, the vitamins, the minerals, the phytochemicals, the things that are more nutrient dense and going to help us. The starch is your refined flour. And what refined carbohydrates are is that they have removed the bran and the starch, excuse me, the bran and the germ, and have just left the starch. That's that yummy white fluffiness um, that tastes so good. And it also results in a sharper insulin spike. So if you hear the difference between those, that's the difference is that a whole grain has the bran starch and germ with all of that lovely uh, fiber and vitamins and minerals and everything. Refined carbohydrates have just the starch. Uh, The refined carbohydrates or the starch is going to give a sharp insulin spike because it is sending the signal to your brain of, oh, quick, we have a lot of sugars that we have to digest. So just go, 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 go insulin, break it all down. Um, whereas whole grains, it's a slow increase in insulin because it takes longer to reach the bloodstream. And so the signal slower, your body's like, oh, we've got time. We can send out a more appropriate amount of insulin over time in order to absorb all of this. Um, awesome. I'll pass off to Megan to talk about fruits and vegetables with carbohydrates. Cause I know that's a special passion of hers uh-huh. with talking, talking about because uh, a lot of people, the, one of the first things you hear is, um, at least with us and being diabetes coaches, of just being like, oh, I need to cut out fruits because they've got sugar in them. And 
and I know Megan has a lot of thoughts and opinions on, on that. I do have thoughts and opinions. Yes. Well, and the, I think the thing that's funny with, with fruits and vegetables, um, or, or, or in my experience, my conversations with people is that one fruits and vegetables are not considered under a carbohydrate umbrella. So mm -hmm. I think that's helpful to understand, uh, especially if you are, for example, breaking down your, your nutrition, your diet by macronutrients, um, a, a moderate intake of, of carbohydrate would be 50% of your nutrition. I need people to understand fruits and vegetables fall into that, mm -hmm. that side exactly. of it. Exactly. Yep. And I obviously think about that as well as, you know, pastas and breads, you know, that's the first thing that comes to mind when we're talking mm -hmm. carbs. But I think, you know, what you're saying is completely relevant for everyone to remember fruits and vegetables are there too. Yes. So if you're getting a recommendation to make 50% of your nutrition carbohydrate, they're not saying eat half of what you should eat is breads and pastas and rice and potatoes. No, <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. half of what you eat should be carbohydrate, including fruits and vegetables. And um, I find it helpful to maybe categorize those two things by the starches that Jenny mentioned earlier and fibrous carbohydrates, mm -hmm. like what you would get in fruits and vegetables. Um, so the sugars in fruits and vegetables are are different from the sugars that, again, Jenny talked about when breaking down a carbohydrate. Um, well, let me go on. <laughs> so table, table sugar um, is uh, su sucrose. Yes, Jenny, can you confirm that for me? Thank you. Table sugar is sucrose. The sugars that you find in fruits and vegetables are fructose. It's different. It also is accompanied in a whole fruit and vegetable, mostly fruits, of course, um, is accompanied by fiber, which means it's broken down differently, specifically more slowly in the body. So fruits and vegetables are going to be a friend. It's going to be a big player in a, a diet that will help avoid prediabetes or insulin resistance. Yeah, breaking down very similar to kind of those whole grains. It's nice and slow, so the insulin isn't going to spike like it is with you know that white bread, for example, that that Jenny was talking about. It's so much of you know keeping a little bit more level, and fruits and vegetables fall into that. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. We want you to eat fruits and vegetables. Mm -hmm. uh, please, please eat fruits and vegetables. And please eat fruits and vegetables. <laughs> please eat fruits and vegetables. Um, and going off of what Megan is, just because this is nuanced, because we're we're kind of in a different world than a lot of people are. But when she says diet, she is not referring to the mega multi-billion dollar systemic issue that we have going on within the United States of calorie restriction and like cha drastically changing the way you intake food. When she says diet, she means literally what you're eating, literally mm -hmm. the food that's so, so I know that can be a trigger <laughs> word for a lot of people. And so just to clarify, if we're talking about diet. We just mean the food that you are eating, not mm -hmm. a specific plan or cal caloric restriction form of eating that you need to follow. I appreciate yes. that clarification. Thank you. Is this, that wasn't really, I was using the word diet intentionally, but in what Jenny just described is literally the food that you're eating. Cause that's what it is. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. 
Yes, we have in, we, in December, we were talking a little bit about a, a, an eating approach, if you will, or a nutrition approach. So again, whatever term we want to use, I think is, is ideal when we're putting food into our mouth for fuel. <laughs> um, yes. So let's dive in a little bit more to the fiber on that. Um, Cause Megan, you brought up fiber when it comes to fruits and vegetables and tell me a little bit about the impact of fiber on our insulin resistance or glucose levels. So the fiber does make a difference. There's a couple different types is soluble fiber and insoluble fiber. Um, soluble fiber is a kind that will dissolve in water. And um, this is the kind of fiber that will help improve things like your cholesterol levels or the glucose in your the glucose levels in your blood uh, where insoluble fiber it um <laughs> physically in the body it adds it adds bulk to the waste mm -hmm. that's eliminated yes. um so that that it doesn't end up being um absorbed into your body and into your cells it helps clear things out of your system um, so the impact as was briefly mentioned is that, uh, it will help keep the glucose levels in your bloodstream lower and help insulin do its job better. Awesome. Jenny, how much fiber should we be eating? So ideal recommendations are 20 to 40 grams per day. And those that that's a big range of intake and it will vary off of your age and your gender. Um, and something that Megan and I frequently have to address when we say that 20 to 40 grams is that most people are not currently close to 20 grams of fiber a day. Mm -hmm. If you have the ambition of getting enough fiber in your diet and getting in that 20 to 40 grams per day, um, you need to do it slowly and it, it, or you will have a lot of discomfort, uh, a lot of gastrointestinal discomfort. Mm -hmm. And so we, we love fiber. It is, it is going to be particularly helpful in lowering your blood glucose levels. It improves insulin sensitivity by replacing sugar and starches that elicit an insulin response. And you also need to very gradually implement that into your diet if it does not currently exist. Um, and then going back to Megan and I's somewhat plea of please eat your fruits and vegetables. She was talking about the difference between soluble uh, fiber and insoluble fiber. Um, the sources of those, if you the soluble fiber, which is going to help specifically with your glucose, that is most of your fruits and your vegetables. That's going to be found in um, and that includes beans. A lot of people don't think of beans in that fruit vegetable category, but that does include beans. Um, that includes your citrus fruits, carrots, peas, all of those things like that. The insoluble fiber is the whole wheat, the wheat bran, nuts, um, and, and a few other vegetables. But just so back to what we were talking about of please eat your vegetables and your fruits, that's where your soluble fiber is going to come from. That's where you're going to see the biggest impact from fiber in relation to your insulin resistance. If you're eating fruits and vegetables, it's going to be really hard to go wrong. That's mm -hmm. true. What I think you guys are talking about the food we're eating. You're not talking about supplements. I was going to, sure. I'm going to let Jen, Jenny has a particular uh, opinions and thoughts on this area. I have so <laughs> many, I have so many opinions on the supplement <laughs> uh, industry in general, but I'll keep it focused. Um <laughs> We want to emphasize dietary fiber over supplementary fiber for a couple of reasons. Of one, 
the actual scientific research does not show that supplementary fiber actually has an impact on your glucose and insulin resistance. Um, there's some mixed results out there, but as a whole, it's not very conclusive that it does any good for you. Um, whereas there is strong evidence that dietary fiber does. Mm -hmm. um, not only that, but most fiber supplements has sugar as one of their main ingredients, which is very counterintuitive to what you are trying to accomplish with insulin resistance if you are pairing fiber with sugar. Um, so as far, when you hear trying to get 20 to 40 grams of fiber a day, we're not talking about supplements or even um, like necessarily like fiber one bars. We're not talking about the guam gum that's often added as a fiber supplement. We are talking about real uh, dietary fiber particularly ones that come from your fruits and vegetables and your whole grains. Yes. Thank you so much for clarifying that. Cause I think, you know, a lot of the time we think of the, the quick fix, right. You know, things that we could do really quickly and sometimes the supplements may be an easier option. So reiterating, we're talking real food, <laughs> real food that you have to chew and swallow and let your yes. body do what it needs to do. Um, let's dive into water. We got to wash it all down with something. So Megan, do you want to talk about the impact of water? So proper water intake um, and good hydration can help dilute glucose in your blood. Um, your water intake is something that adds volume to your blood. Mm -hmm. So um, that would make sense that it would dilute the glucose <laughs> mm -hmm. if you are, if you're properly hydrated. Um, and studies show that that drinking more water helps reduce the risk of type two by diabetes. Mm -hmm. um, I think for a number of reasons, if you're properly hydrated, then your body's going to function correctly. We talked about how insulin is, it's a hormone that touches all air, um, all parts of the body, your brain, your heart, your lungs, your muscle, your bone, everything. It carries glucose to everything. And it does that through your bloodstream. So if you're better hydrated, it's going to, to facilitate carrying that nutrient all the way through your body. Um, similar to our recommendation with fiber, um, building up your water intake is going to be a smarter way to go versus mm -hmm. trying to jump anything up. Um, so there are some baseline recommendations. There, there are a couple that people will go by most frequently. There's a one size fits all of 64 ounces a day. Um, and then a more personalized recommendation is essentially half your body weight in ounces. But again, if you're drinking maybe a glass of water a day and you're a 200 pound person, I would not recommend jumping up to hundred ounces immediately. <laughs> I would yeah. recommend building it up. Eight to 12 ounces a day is, is a recommendation that I throw out most frequently. Yes. Baby steps, just like we do with so many of our health habits. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, Let's talk about fat. I think whenever we say that word, um, people cringe, you know, sometimes just like we do with carbs, but again, you know, fats are also not bad. So Jenny, do you want to jump into, um, the importance of fats, the differences, and we need them. We do need them that I, I think particularly in the eighties, there was this huge fat-free phenomenon that, that exploded in the world. And, um, there was a lot of misunderstanding about dietary fat, which again, 
Fat is a macronutrient. We've got fats, carbs, and protein. Fat is a macronutrient that we need. Um, and uh, the fat that we have on our butt and store on our bodies. Mm-hmm. So there's a little bit of a miscommunication there a few decades ago, and that really has stayed pervasive um, within diet culture. Um, it's interesting because fat with it, when it was discussing insulin resistance and type two diabetes, um, there's a fat that you want to be aware of that most people are not aware of that are called ceramides. Um, this is not a fat in your diet. It's a fat found in your cells. Ceramides are activated when your body's inflamed. So inflammation can be caused by a lot of things, uh, injuries, illness, autoimmune diseases, obesity is a form of, uh, can cause inflammation, smoking, all of these things cause inflammation. And when your body is inflamed, it activates these fats called ceramides and ceramides turn these innocent little saturated fats into themselves into other ceramides. And the problem with ceramides is that they make your cells less sensitive to insulin, which is all of what we're talking about right here. That is their function. Um, so this is something that we do not want. We don't want inflammation and we don't want these excess ceramides. So what research has shown is that with pe- when people eat a diet of moderate carb intake, which Megan was talking about, about 50% of your diet coming from carbohydrates and 50% of that 50% coming from fruits and vegetables. Um, And also a fat liberal diet. So not avoiding dietary fat, um, but but really a a good healthy, you know, maybe 30% um, or more of your diet coming from fat. Um, Ceramides are not increased. And those tissues, those bad fats that are um, specifically making your cells less sensitive to insulin are not increased when you are eating a good moderate carb intake and a fat liberal diet. And that includes saturated and unsaturated fats. Um, So I, I don't want people to be afraid of eating fats. We can talk, I I Mm -hmm. think Megan really wanted to touch on specifically nutrition labels at some point in time. Um, and so we'll, we'll touch more about this, but if you just really quick, if you look at something that is fat-free, let's say fat-free, like sour cream, for instance, and if you look at full fat sour cream and you look at the ingredient list of those, one, the full fat is going to have like two ingredients while the fat-free option is going to have maybe dozens because it's Mm -hmm. so processed and it's got so many other things on it eat the full fat option. This is not a bad thing. In fact, this is actually going to help your insulin resistance um, and it'll taste better. So you're really getting the best of both worlds. Um, The other kind of fat that people need to be aware of is trans fats. Um, Trans fats are really quickly altered polyunsaturated fats that they've been processed Mm -hmm. in order to give foods a longer shelf life. So if it can stay on your shelf for a really long time, it probably has some sort of trans fats in them. Um, There's been plenty of studies that trans fats significantly increase your risk of type two diabetes, as well as other things like fatty liver. Trans fats are also very sneaky because even a tiny bit of trans fats can have this negative impact and increase your risk of type two diabetes but they don't have to be reported on the nutrition label if it is under a certain amount. (laughs) They legally do not have to report it. So if you're like being so good and you're looking at your 
fat list and it describes it and you don't see any trans fats, that does not mean that trans fats are not in there. And so what you wanna look for is when you go to the ingredient list, you wanna look for the words hydrogenated oils or partially hydrogenated oils. What that means is that you have added that, that hydrogen to the oil, literally, you, it's now made a altered, a polyunsaturated fat into a trans fat. That is what you want to look for. And that is what you want to try to avoid. And quite frankly, that's going to be avoided. If you're eating those full fat foods, if you eat butter instead of margarine, if you eat a full fat sour cream instead or Greek yogurt, instead of mm -hmm. uh, like lower fat or fat-free alternatives. And so those are the big things that I would want people to be aware of is not being afraid of dietary fat that either that comes from natural sources, but to be not afraid of, but, but to be aware of the fats that are formed from inflammation and the fats that come from food processing, um, mm -hmm. those hydrogenated and partially hydrogenated oils, those are going to have the negative impact on insulin resistance and increase your risk of type two diabetes. Yes. You did say something about like being, being fearful of it, which I actually think, um, you know, when you said you, you recommended not to be afraid of a, a diet liberal in fat, um, which I wonder if that has, has, you know, caught people's ear, um, because I do think that that can be something that will cause, create some pause, right? Yeah. Because fat means more calories and, um, that's true. And unfortunately, that's something that that may may be. I'm sorry, I'm tripping over all my words. Um, but yeah, cause people a little bit of fear, right? Is that I'm going to increase mm -hmm. my calories, I'm going to increase my weight, I'm going to increase my my risk for all of these these chronic conditions. Um, but interestingly enough, if you do have a severely uh, calorie restricted diet, that also causes inflammation and you talked mm. about the ceramides right and and the response to inflammation and ceramides making the body more insulin resistant right yes a a severely calorie restricted diet creates that in the body it creates that inflammation it creates that response it also increases um the body's cortisol levels yes which again drives down the sensitivity to insulin, meaning your body needs more and more of it. It would make your insulin, your blood insulin levels higher. Like we were talking about, you could have those higher insulin blood levels while the glucose levels are still low. So it's, it's this process that's happening in your body. It's something that can be present in your body, even though the things that we typically test for is something that a, a doctor would commonly test for the glucose is mm -hmm. showing as normal ranges. I cannot thank you enough for that comment. Yes, because calorie, like severe calorie restriction is going to also cause inflammation, mm -hmm. which is going to increase those ceramides and also increase your risk of insulin resistance and type two diabetes. Thank you so much for that. And, and so like you said, it's, it's not about being fearful. It's funny because both carbohydrates and fats have been vilified at some point in time, oh, right? Yeah. Maybe just depends on what decade we're talking about. Um, but it's not so much about making either one of those macronutrients the enemy, because as we've said, your body uses carbohydrates, your body uses fats, your body uses proteins. It's not about vilifying any of them. It's more about understanding or um, being educated on those things. Yeah, being aware of where they come from and also being aware because you you correctly pointed out that per gram 
uh, fat particularly, and also carbohydrates have more calories per gram mm-hmm. than, uh, than protein does. Um, they has also in particular more satiating as is food that's high mm-hmm. in fiber. And when I say satiating, I mean that you feel fuller for longer. So yes, you might be increasing per gram, the amount of calories that you are eating in this food. Also, you're eating more filling food. You should be more, your body should be feeling more satisfied for longer periods of time than if you were eating um, really refined, uh, heavily processed foods that just have those starches in them because you're lacking the fiber, you're lacking the fat. It's not as satiating. You're going to want to crave more. So by eating those whole foods, yes, they are higher in calorie. They should also be more filling. Yeah. So which, which creates a situation for your body to, to, um, manage your actual caloric needs better. If you're eating full fat foods, if you're eating high fiber foods, it's satisfying, um, nutrient needs in your body. Mm -hmm. So you come into, you fall into more appropriate caloric intake. Yes. And I, I have to remember that people don't just watch this on a webinar and that they listen to it as a podcast. Cause I feel like I'm a bobblehead right now, but people can't <laughs> see where I'm just like, yes, everything that Megan is saying, I am like nodding along aggressively. Yes. We should be clapping <laughs> our Verbal hands. Confirmations. Yes. <laughs> we want people to listen to Megan. Yeah. So you guys have both touched on it as well. And I think, you know, I do want to dive into it just briefly as well Is you know, there's a lot of things that are out there. We've talked about fiber. We've talked about carbs. We've talked about fat. There is one easy way to take a look at this. And I know Megan, you wanted to talk a little bit more about nutrition labels. Ah, nutrition labels. Yeah, we're on the same page. So um, yeah, nutrition labels. So I think uh, speaking of maybe educating and and being aware, um, knowing how to read a nutrition label or at least a few things that you might wanna look for on a nutrition label can be helpful. Um, So Jenny ended at it earlier with her example of a a full fat sour cream versus a fat free Mm -hmm. option. a recommendation that I would like to make is looking at ingredients lists on foods that have nutrition labels. So generally I would uh, recommend people look for things that have shorter ingredient lists. And um, I like the example of a sour cream because it's something that if you were to go to the store and look, compare the two, it you would see very clearly a full fat option has less ingredients, more whole food, natural ingredients versus a fat-free option that had the list goes on and on and on. Uh, The more processing you do to it, the more things that are in that food product. Um, Something maybe I'd like to point out here, uh, when when you do take the fat, for example, take the fat or take a natural ingredient out of the food, it's going to be replaced with something that makes it palatable. And a Mm -hmm. lot of times in the case of, of foods that have a lot of fat in them what's being replaced are sugars Mm -hmm. taste (laughs) yes yeah you hear you hear the chef say it all the time if you're a cooking show at uh aficionado that fat Mm -hmm. equals flavor if you don't have fat in something you have to make it taste palatable somehow so that means if it's fat free it's very likely going to be so high in sugar which is going to have a more a more um adverse effect more negative mm-hmm. effect on your your blood glucose levels and and yes. by association the insulin levels um 
Well, and Megan, I was thinking as well with the ingredient list, and I often laugh about this, especially with young kids, as you start to talk about some of the things, well, the health nuts that we all are, we talk about this with our kids. You know, when you're reading those ingredients lists, there's, you know, the long process names that I can't even pronounce. So mm-hmm. it's like kind of pump the brakes for myself if I'm reading down those ingredient lists and I can't even pronounce what it is that I'm, that I'm eating. Makes me wonder. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's that uh, was definitely a case for me and my personal experience of when I started reading the ingredients list of like, well, this this one literally just says cream in the sour cream and I can't mm. even I can't say the stuff in this fat free mm-hmm. option. You know what? I think I'm gonna go with with the whole food, uh, yeah. or the just the full fat content there. Okay, so something that would um, be I think what people are looking for in nutrition labels generally is the calorie content. Um, that's fine, especially if you are managing your nutrition with your total calorie intake. Um, but the ingredients list, another thing that I would recommend reading on that list are things like the sugar content, carbohydrate content, and the fiber content of those things. Yes. Um, and this, uh, I don't know if I'm moving away from, from the point too quickly, but I did want to bring something up that I learned about fairly recently is in the carbohydrate versus the fiber conversation is the difference between the glycemic index and the glycemic load. Mm, Jenny, are you familiar with this? Yes, please. Okay. So I, you may, our viewers, listeners may be familiar with the glycemic index as I was not familiar with the glycemic load, which Okay, the glycemic index ranks foods by how quickly it's broken down and spikes your glucose levels. The Mm -hmm. glycemic load ranks those same foods by its overall impact on glucose and insulin release in your body. Um, And the the example that was thrown out with this, which I actually really appreciated, was watermelon. Because on a glycemic index, watermelon is listed Mm -hmm. as a high glycemic index food. And I've known this for a long time, and it actually has always really bothered me. Why is watermelon listed so high on this? Um, because it, it will break down quickly, and it'll spike quickly, but this one goes away very quickly. Its glycemic load is like a net two on, mm-hmm. on the scale, which, for reference, foods that are below a 10 on the glycemic load scale are your low-impact foods. So watermelon is an interesting one where it's really high on the glycemic index, but really low on the glycemic load. Mm. So, uh, yeah. so, so eat fruit. So eat fruit. Yes. So eat fruit, right. And that's full what circle. I was going to ask is, you know, what else? So is it all fruits that are with, that way? I mean, what else, what would be another example of kind of that same, you know, shift? It, it can't really be generalized of saying all fruits, there's going to be exceptions to, to everything, but for the most part, yes, this, it's not the fruits don't have the sugars that we need to be worried about. Um, the, the glycemic load, the, how our body responds to it is going to be significantly better than the processed refined mm-hmm. flours and simple sugars that, that people find in, um, not only white carbohydrates, but also, uh, like candy and, uh, yes. soda and things like that. 
all those Valentine's Day treats that I'm sure we all have lying around. <laughs> Guilty of that one. Yes, I know. I know. Um, so you guys, we're kind of, we're rounding out our podcast time, but you guys are coaches. You guys are professional CDC diabetes prevention coaches. So I really want to make sure that I'm tying into that skill that you guys have, because this is what you do. You know, we provided a lot of information, a lot of awareness, education, but Jenny, can we start with you? Um, what is your biggest recommendation from that coach hat um, as we, as people think about nutrition and it may or may not be related specifically to diabetes prevention, but from a coaching hat, do you have, you know, three or so different, you know, coaching recommendations that people can try to be successful? The, this one might sound, um, I hope it doesn't sound too trite, but I would encourage people, I encourage people to start small. Um, a, a big reason why um, so many people fail with their new year's resolutions, you know, most people are, are done by February um, is because you've got this grand vision of where you want to be and you just attack it really hard. You know, I, someone says that they, they don't want to drink soda anymore. So they just eliminate it entirely, or they want to exercise five days a week. So they go from not exercising at all to exercising five days a week. And it's not sustainable and it hurts and it's hard and it makes it so you don't want to repeat that. Whereas if you start off small and something that's very attainable, that leads to seeing signs of success earlier on, it is more motivating to build on that and to continue to develop that than if you just try to full sprint. So mm -hmm. in relation to this podcast, we talked about, we've talked about so many different things. We've talked about fiber and water and fat and carbohydrates. If there is any, like we talked about a lot, my encouragement would be don't take all of that and try to apply it all at once. Mm -hmm. Try and identify one thing that you might want to see some improvement with and then try to start that smaller. So that might be identifying how many servings of fruits and vegetables you eat now, and maybe just trying to add one. Maybe it's mm -hmm. about um, being more adventurous in the grocery store and trying to experiment with uh, maybe a fruit or a vegetable that you're not familiar with. Um, and maybe it'll be great and maybe it won't, but you, know, you, you might expand your palate and pleasantly surprise yourself if you're someone who thinks you don't like fruits and vegetables. Um, and so that would be my biggest encouragement for everyone of, of just start small, that, that is not a sign of weakness. That is not a sign of, um, a lack of motivation or laziness. That is a smart person who's going to start small, be successful, and then gradually build on what they have done. And it's going to be way more sustainable, uh, than someone who just tries to go full tilt. Mm-hmm. Well, it could be as simple as, you know, just looking at the nutrition labels, picking up a couple different yogurts and checking them out, you know, a place. To exactly. Start yeah. Well. Look, look at your, look at your peanut butter jars. Like there, mm -hmm. the thing with looking at nutrition labels is that it's interesting because you might, you might have something that you always get and there's the same product that is going to be a more whole food source. Um, just, I mean, just sticking with the peanut butter example of your peanut butter might have 12 plus ingredients on it. And there's going to be a peanut butter that has salt and peanuts listed. Mm -hmm. um, same, same product, but one is going to have a, a different impact on specifically your, your glucose and your insulin resistance. Absolutely. Megan, what's your coaching advice? 
Um, so I do want to double down on Jenny's recommendation to to build the habit. As diabetes educators, you you would get some 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 information or recommendations from us um, that would be eat like this track your carbs, track your fats, make sure you're doing this much, this much exercise each week. But as health coaches, we understand that all of those recommendations you get from a diabetes educator are habit based and mm -hmm. habits take time to build. So mm -hmm. I do want to double down on that. Um, that said, I think it, it may not surprise anyone uh, based on our conversation already, but the fruits and vegetables, prioritizing fruits and vegetables would be a big recommendation of mine. Um, the impact that they have are can't be overstated. It's hard to go wrong with your fruits and vegetables. Um, it is carbohydrate that your body utilizes and um, building up that that intake over time will have positive impacts. Yes. Tara, I know we're winding down. Um, can I interject real quick? All three of us are moms and we all work. <laughs> and can we like maybe really quick talk, throw out some ideas of what everybody does to get fruits and vegetables into their diet and their kids diet that because I feel like a lot of resistance that I get from participants that I speak with is I don't have time or don't like it or, or what have you, is there maybe like everybody could just really quick throw out something that really works for them. I can start. <laughs> yeah. I'll go first. <laughs> I'll go first. Um, two, two of my biggest things are uh, one. I live my life by salad kits. Um, I haven't assembled a salad in at least eight years. I, mm -hmm. I love them with all of my heart. They come pre-made. I put it in a bowl. I put no effort into it and frozen steamable bags. A lot of people think that uh, frozen veggies are not as nutrient dense as fresh veggies for whatever reason. Frozen veggies are are uh, flash frozen at peak nutrition. Those mm -hmm. veggies are going to be simple and easy and oftentimes very kid friendly. Um, you can add like a little bit of salt and pepper to season them up and they're fabulous. Yes, exactly. My tip is to make it fun to eat, you know, whether it be, you know, putting it in, you know, little boxes, you know, so the kids, they enjoy eating it. Um, so, you know, obviously kids love to dip stuff. So whether or not we're dipping into something that's high in fat or not, but kids love to dip. Um, so that's always been something for us is, you know, dipping an apple in peanut butter or a banana with peanut butter. So again, ways to make it kind of an interactive activity has always been really fun for my kids. Carrot sticks, you know, is something again, that's always kind of fun to eat. And again, you know, little bento boxes with various containers. Um, it looks fun. It is fun and it's interactive. So that's one that we've always kind of stood on from kind of the fruits and vegetables and making it fun and dippable. Dippable is, is a fan favorite around my house. Mm -hmm. For sure. For sure. And the whole, you know, not being afraid of fats thing uh, is helpful because the, there's a veggie dip that um, that we have around our house a lot of the time. Uh, but like a veggie dip, a hummus or like peanut butter with the fruits is is the one that yeah. is around our house a lot, too. Um, for for me, like I have these these for this feels like a grand idea to me to steam or um, bake or boil up a bunch of vegetables and then turn it into a spaghetti sauce, right? Mm -hmm. Yes, 
speaking of doing the things that work for you and starting small, for some reason, that feels like so much work to me. It was like such a great idea. This, If I was on my nutrition vegetable game, this is what I would be doing. I'm not there yet. So my first thing that I focus on is just having it around, having it available. I keep giving them to my kid. So yeah. it's, it's on their plate. It has a dip. Um, and it's, it's in our fridge. Just they're available. I mean, it's always on my grocery list, making sure yep. that they're around. Yep. If and I making can, it a goal to eat it before it goes bad, right? Yeah. Yeah. If I can have my things like cut up too. Mm-hmm. Um, I've found out that my daughter will eat a lot more carrots if they're boiled, if they're soft instead of crunchy. Mm-hmm. So even if it's cold carrots, but they're cooked and dipped, <laughs> she'll eat a lot yeah, more. Exactly. Of them. Yes. So good. So um, to all of our listeners and those that have joined us live today, we've got experts that are here and they are experts to help. Um, They are an amazing resource. So as part of the Orion Wellness Program, if you have health coaches available, please use them um, and reach out to us because they are a wealth of knowledge. As you can tell, they've given us so much to work with and play with and try. Um, And the conversation doesn't stop here. So we are going to continue um, our diabetes prevention series this year, but know that from the back end, Megan and Jenny, as our CDC diabetes prevention coaches, um, they are here to help. So please reach out to us, to them, um, and we can get you connected if you're looking for a little bit more specific, actionable coaching relationship. Um, Hopefully that's okay, ladies, for me to throw that out there because we want people to utilize it and be successful. Absolutely. So thank you both so, so, so much. You will be back. I hope I can convince you to come back, hopefully in May-ish. And we'll talk about another categories of diabetes prevention um, so we can continue to build upon this. So even if people aren't pre-diabetic, they don't have type 2 diabetes, we should all be thinking about these things so we can push it off as long as possible and hopefully forever. So thank you ladies so much. We're going to wrap up our podcast episode, but again, fantastic information. I've got some stuff to work with and I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks, Tara. Thanks. Have a great day.